News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's move on to a slightly more serious topic, the U.S.-Canada border. When will we find out more about the reopening? Reggie Cicchini is here now, Global Washington correspondent and producer. Reggie, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. What do we know about details coming about the easing of border restrictions? Well, I mean, look, there's still very little by way of information that's coming out of the U.S. government, at least. And, uh... That is solely because they are not being as transparent as we are seeing uh, in Ottawa. We heard yesterday that Justin Trudeau intends to uh, ease things further over the coming weeks. He's trying to take a cautious approach, but he also made a point of saying uh, that he wasn't going to be bullied into or rushed into reopening the, uh, the border solely because there is pressure building from U.S. lawmakers, namely from the number three Republican, uh, Elise Stefanik, in the House, namely from uh, Democrat uh, uh, Representative Higgins from Niagara Falls, who have really been building pressure not only on Ottawa, but also on the Biden administration. Look, I reached out to the White House yesterday, uh, and I was told that of these uh, kind of working groups that are in place to try and figure out the best way forward, all I was told is that they're both, quote, active and ongoing, but very few details actually released on what they intend to do when it comes to metrics. Uh, so are they telling you as well, because one of the issues in on this side of the border has been, we understand why you're keeping the border closed, but at least tell us the vaccination rate has to be this. Tell us what the metrics are that will lead to the reopening. Are, are you getting a roadmap in the States? No, and that's what's really frustrating uh, a lot of members of the Biden uh, administration, uh, or at least a, a lot of members uh, from the Democratic Party, given the fact that their leader is in the White House right now and he's not offering any uh, information going forward. But look, given the fact that within the last 24 hours, we were told by the White House that they're about to miss their first target when it comes to the rate of vaccination in the United States. It's hard to see now how the president is going to be quick to kind of put the key in and unlock the borders, given the fact that the U.S. is now struggling to get to that 70 percent mark for people 18 plus to have at least one shot. And there is concern now in the U.S. with the Delta variant that's rolling around, especially in the South and U.S. Mountain West, that that could start to undo some of the vaccine success. So I think uh, for a president who has really made the first few months of his administration honed in and focused on the vaccine effort to try and tamp down uh, this pandemic, the fact that it's now not going in his direction could be a potential signal that we may not hear anything about metrics going forward at least until the next round of reopening talks, you know, around July 21st. And do we know what's uh, feeding that, I guess, vaccine hesitancy? Because we're seeing on the one hand, we see cities and states where things almost look like they're back to normal. But then when we see those numbers, what is it that we're, we're hearing that's caused that slowdown? Yeah, I mean, look, the whole, the whole country is basically getting back to normal. But in particular, these areas down around the U.S. South, in through Alabama and Louisiana and Mississippi, up into Arkansas, through the Mountain West, into parts of Wyoming and Utah, uh, it's a combination of things. It's roughly around 20 to 30 percent of the population that is still hesitant. Half of that number is uh, simply saying that they don't have enough information or that they don't trust the information that's coming from public health experts or government. And that is because politics is playing into the vaccine effort here. 
you also have uh, another half of that group saying that they simply have no intention of ever getting a vaccine, whether it's for a religious reason or a political reason, or they feel that their own health is going to protect them. And that uh, is the struggling message right now that the White House is trying to get out to say, look, younger people, 18 to 27, just because you're healthy, it doesn't mean that you're going to stay healthy, especially with the numbers on the rise. Look, there are uh, at least 12 states right now that are seeing their daily case count start to increase again. uh, And the Delta variant is now responsible, according to health experts, for 20% of all new hospitalizations and cases that are being reported in these states. And that is also kind of sitting on that that pressure that's already been mounting on the Biden administration to get the border reopened at the same time that you have case numbers now going in the opposite direction. So at this point, we know essential travel still banned until at least July 21st. Will it be closer to that date, do you think, when we find out about an extension or what happens next? Yeah, I mean, look, the White House uh, and 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 more specifically, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for the border. Uh, I mean, I reached out to them uh, in the days before uh, the 21st uh, of June when we found out that Ottawa was going to be making uh, an announcement. We found out that uh, Minister Blair was going to be kind of talking about those easing of restrictions. I put the White House and the Department of Homeland Security on the spot and said, look, Ottawa is about to make these announcements right now. Is there anything that you can give? Uh, they were cagey. They were not responsive in some parts, uh, and they waited until the 20th to put that tweet out. And that's really how it's gone for the last several months. It is really hard to try and crack the outer shell uh, of anybody who's trying to work on this border logistics plan. That is what is driving some of that anger within not only the Democratic Party, but the Republican Party, and especially the Northern Border Caucus, uh, who are really trying to say, look, trade may be happening right now, but businesses are suffering because people can't get across the border. And if the science is telling people that you can go out and live a normal life, why can't we get across? the border. The problem is nobody at the highest levels of government is offering up any kind of explanation as to what their reasoning is. All right. We will stay tuned. Reggie, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi, talking now about a scathing indictment released yesterday. The Canadian Forces Ombudsman raising the specter of interference in the work of his office at a time when the military is already under intense public scrutiny about allegations of high-level sexual misconduct. Joining me now is Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Very well. How about you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about what was released by Gregory Lick? Well, essentially, this was a report with recommendations um, that that were pretty clear, and that it was it was almost singular. It was that that he believes the Canadian Forces Ombudsman should be completely independent. Right now, the situation is such that the Ombudsman actually reports to the Minister of National Defence. But what Lick was essentially saying is, how can you really do your job if the Minister maybe doesn't want something out or there's political interference in an investigation, which is what he is alleging has been ongoing? So in that situation, he's saying, look, I should be reporting to Parliament. Any future Ombudsman should be reporting to Parliament. This isn't just about the Liberal government or a Conservative of government. It's about the need to have an oversight watchdog actually able to report to the institution that governs this country. It's the way the Auditor General and others work, and he says it's well past time this was the same case for the National Defence Ombudsman. I know the Prime Minister was asked about this yesterday as well. Did we get any clear answer or any indication if things are going to change? 
Well, we essentially got the same thing that we've been hearing from this government since we first broke the stories about military sexual misconduct back in February, and that is promises to do things differently and better, uh, but they still have not committed to having an independent watchdog, whether that's the ombudsman or somebody else who reports to Parliament without political oversight of someone in a party who might have their own political agenda. They say that they are going to look carefully at the report uh, and I apologize, there's a motorcycle going slowly by me here. Welcome to Summer Radio Hits. Uh, <laughs> he says that they are going to uh, look carefully at uh, the report and decide, but he would not make a commitment yesterday on a t- timeline or on what specifically um, any kind of independence might look like. Uh, Did Gregory Lick also mention or reference how things might also be different in that there is a lot of speculation we could see a fall election? So he said that the political pressure always ramps up right before an election, and that in part is one of his concerns. And while he said that um, there has been political interference, it wasn't necessarily direct interference uh, from the minister's office, but he warned about the kind of interference where politicians just essentially don't act uh, because it's not in their political interests. And he did say on multiple occasions throughout this report and in his press conference that political pressure amps up in advance of an election, and that's part of the reason why it's so important to have this role be independent so it's not affected by election cycles when its primary job is actually to be trying to protect the men and women of the Canadian forces who are serving our country regardless of where we are in the electoral cycle. Uh, And you you mentioned too this is a lot to do with stories that you broke and stories that you've brought out and made public and one of the quotes from Gregory Lick saying that it's clear inaction is rewarded far more than action. I mean that is when we talk about a scathing report uh, you can't be much clearer than that. Well, and you could really hear his frustration yesterday, and I think he probably was very frustrated after uh, listening to the Prime Minister's press conference, where, again, it was the same thing. Talk, 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 not a lot of action. Um, They've created a role for Jenny Carignan. She is a a general here in Ottawa to deal with the culture issues. Um, But that's not something that's actually been recommended by any of the victims groups or the experts who look into this. Um, They have all said that there need to be changes in the military justice system, that there needs to be uh, changes in where the chain of command is able to interfere. And one of the things that Lick talked about in his report was the Department of National Defense actively interfering in investigations he was trying to conduct uh, or trying to prevent information that was unflattering to them from coming out. They shouldn't be able to do that when this is an independent investigator looking into concerns. Um, And so I think that uh, well, well, we keep hearing more and more about this. The reality is there's potentially an election around the corner. I can tell you today is the last day we think the House of Commons is going to be sitting. They're going to rise. Um, so if not now, when will the government actually be doing this? What are we hearing from Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan? He released a statement uh, early yesterday evening essentially saying that he had a good professional working relationship with Lick. Um, He said that Lick said he had never experienced political interference. Uh, Not quite what Lick had actually said in his report. He said direct interference from the minister's office. Uh, But he raised the concern that multiple other ombudsmen have been interfered with, uh, including through inaction. Um, And one's mind kind of goes to the incident uh, where Minister Sajjan refused to accept um, that evidence against John. 
John Vance in a sexual misconduct claim that was being made by a reservist. Uh, but in the statement, he essentially insisted he has a good working relationship, uh, reiterated all the talking points about the government taking this very seriously, and then went on to say that if Lick essentially felt there was a problem with his office, he should have said something, but he never did. Um, and for Lick, he's saying, you know, this is not unique to me or, or to Sajjan. Um, it's every single ombudsman who's been in this role has come to the same conclusion that they're not able to do their jobs properly because of the need for independence. There was nothing in that statement that indicated that Sajjan was committing to making uh, the ombudsman or any other role independent reporting to Parliament. They've said independence many times, but they refuse to say how that independence looks, which is pretty key to figuring out if it'll actually be an independent position or not. And Mercedes, just before I let you go, Gregory Lick is not a name I think that's common with a lot of people. Did he explain or did he talk to you or, or Global News about the reason why he came out, why he felt the need to make sure that he went public and, and released this information? But yeah, he said at the press conference yesterday and his, his exact quote was, enough is enough. Um, he is so frustrated by what he's seen with the lack of action on the sexual misconduct, on how it managed to get that bad. That it wasn't, you know, uh, one or two bad apples. This was systemic and at high ranks of the Canadian Armed Forces. And he believes that part of that might have been avoided if the Ombudsman had been able to do his job and get information and report without fear of reprisals to protect victim privacy, to actually conduct investigations. And so he essentially is just at the end of his rope and is saying, you know, uh, um, if this doesn't tell you something needs to change, I don't know what to say. Um, and it was pretty remarkable to see him come out and give a press conference like that and to pretty clearly attack a sitting government uh, on their lack of action and what he perceives as political interference. That That's very rare, even in these watchdog roles in Ottawa. All right. Mercedes, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Mercedes Stevenson is Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. This is Mornings with Simi. There is a growing call for a roadmap, roadmap, sorry, when it comes to resuming cruises and the cruise industry, which is vital to the Canadian tourism economy. And joining me on the line now to talk more about this is Ian Robertson, who is the CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Jill, and good morning. Good morning. A letter has gone to Transport Canada requesting that roadmap. Uh, you, your organization, many others involved in tourism as well. What specifically are you asking for? Well, we're asking uh, specifically Transport Canada, the federal government, that we need to have a full reopening plan for the borders released as soon as possible, and specifically uh, within that, uh, a specific call that the order banning crews will be rescinded later this fall, giving certainty to the cruise lines that they will be welcomed back in 2022. And have you gotten any bit of that or even a glimpse of that roadmap? No, not at all. And that's what's the, the frustrating uh, part about this is that uh, despite repeated uh, outreaches to our federal government, uh, there's been nothing in return. I've, I've had some conversations with staff within Transport Canada uh, telling me that, you know, news can be coming. But, uh, you know, we've yet to hear from our elected officials at the end of the day who make that call. And uh, over the last uh, few weeks, uh, I've had ongoing conversations with the cruise lines and, and they're telling me that uh, Canada is still a question mark for 2022 and they need that certainty.
Which I think might come as a surprise to people because even given the way things are, if you look at the vaccination rates, you look what what's happening with cruise industries in other parts of the world, there are cruises coming back. I mean, unfortunately, there have been some cases of COVID-19 on the cruises, but I think there was a general idea that everything would be worked out by 2022. Well, that was certainly our hope, and that's what we'd like to see. I mean, at the end of the day, Canada is leading the world in terms of uh, vaccinations, but we're certainly not leading the world in terms of uh, plans to open up not just our marine border, but our our land border as well. And that's the frustrating uh, part about it. And, uh, you know, we, we've recognized that uh, we're not talking about the 2021 season. We understand, and pardon the pun, the ship has sailed on that particular season. But we do want clarity. And I think what's also making this uh, equally urgent, uh, Jill, is that uh, just recently uh, Senator Mike Lee from, from Utah has introduced uh, three bills that possibly would take the permanent waiver that was granted to the cruise lines so they could sail to Alaska this year from Seattle, but they want to t- uh, Senator Lee wants to make that bill permanent. And I think the longer that we delay signaling to the United States that uh, cruise will be welcome, the more this, could, this bill could, contain, uh, could gain momentum. And I think that's further making this, uh, this uh, uh, request of government even more important. So at this point, do you need clarification on the U.S.-Canada border? And would that then lead to likely more clarification on the cruise season and the cruise industry? Or do you need specific uh, timeline goals or timeline uh, initiatives for the cruise, the cruise ship season itself? Well, it would be, it would be preferable if uh, when there is n- more news around a, a land and marine border opening that specifically cruises mentioned, because right now uh, the way it is is cruise, uh, cruise ships are banned. Uh, to arriving in Canadian ports until February 28th, uh, 2022. But given the fact that uh, we've we've you know we've moved that over the over the last 15 months for very good reasons, uh, the cruise lines are seeking a, a specific you know nod, if I could say that, that they would be welcome back in in 2022, and they need to begin planning. Uh, a lot of their itineraries are being set, and uh, the cruise lines need certainty in order to plan and sell those itineraries. All right. We will be watching to see what happens with this and for any updates. Ian Robertson, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Joe. Ian Robertson is the CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority, one of many groups that has sent a letter to Transport Canada, again, asking for clear indications on when the ban on cruise ships in Canadian waters will be rescinded. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it has been six months that Surrey Police Service Chief Constable Norm Lipinski has been at the helm in that role. And he joins us on the line now to talk about that and some other things that are happening in Surrey. Norm Lipinski, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you. Good morning, Jill. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Well, six months in, that's a milestone. You've also put out consultation trying to get some feedback from the community. Uh, At this point, what would you say has been accomplished? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, I'm proud of uh, what we've done so far. We've uh, hired uh, almost uh, 70 police officers, uh, over 70 if you consider the civilian staff as well. We're marching ahead. We certainly uh, developed our policies, our organizational structure. And then working with the board, uh, what's next up uh, is uh, community consultation. And we're quite excited about that. 
There's uh, really two streams of that. There's uh, a survey portion uh, that'll be going out, uh, if not this week, next week, and uh, right throughout Surrey. And then there'll be community consultation from the perspective of focus groups and interviewing uh, key stakeholders. And uh, with those two streams, I think we can gleam a lot of great information uh, from the community as far as what type of police service they would like to see and uh, what are the issues that they would like uh, policing to address in Surrey. Uh, earlier on in this program, we played a little bit from Darlene Bennett. Uh, I'm sure you know Darlene Bennett's husband was killed in 2018, gunned down in front of their home. She is also behind a petition that Elections BC has approved as far as going ahead with a referendum on changing the police force in Surrey. What are your thoughts on that? If that petition or if that referendum does come back, showing people have big concerns about that transition? A couple of things I'll say about that. First of all, it's a democratic process, so uh, people can avail themselves to do that. Uh, this is really a municipal and a provincial uh, decision, and uh, I do know that uh, the mayor uh, has spoken about this already. The Surrey Police Service uh, stays out of that, but I can tell you this, that uh, we are working with the three levels of government and uh, there is no indication at the present time that uh, there is going to be a change in the course of direction. And so whether it's the province or the uh, federal government, and uh, we are working towards doing a transition, a safe transition without compromising community safety, this is about passing the baton. So right now, it's all systems go. I don't see anything to indicate otherwise. So what happens in a scenario like that where Surrey RCMP officers have been working with IHIT on a pretty high-profile murder investigation? How does that transition then to a new force? Uh, it's done very carefully in the sense of uh, there is a lot of what I call overlap. So this isn't about somebody just coming in and handing over the file. This will be the overlap of working together and in some cases having additional resources because of that overlap and then slowly transitioning uh, the file. So uh, just be, uh, being more specific pertaining to IHIT, we will be part of the IHIT team and uh, there will be already leads on each of those files and uh, we won't necessarily be taking over those files because it is an integrated team from all agencies. But specific to Surrey and the investigative uh, areas within Surrey, such as uh, frauds and, and uh, property crime, etc. Uh, that's where the overlap, that's where the planning comes into place, that's where the discussion comes in to ensure a smooth transition. So different from, say, how Vancouver works independently of IHIT, the Surrey Police Service will be part of that? Yes, uh, just to make it very clear, so uh, when we're talking about uh, the five integrated teams, not just IHIT, but there's the urch and there's the dogs and, and then there's the uh, traffic and the forensics, uh, we will be part of all five integrated teams. And uh, <clears throat> that's a little bit different from what Vancouver does because uh, they are standalone and so they take care of all those five areas uh, just by themselves. All right. We only have 30 seconds left. I know you've said the fall before. When do you expect the service to be up and running? 
my goal, my personal goal, is to get some boots on the ground this fall. And uh, we're working towards that date. But there's, uh, I have to say, there's many, many complexities. And there's uh, a lot of people working on this uh, full time. And uh, a lot of legal stuff that needs to be taken care of. But we're making progress. So my personal goal is this fall. But it could be. It sounds like the goal is fall, but it might be later than that. No, I'm gonna. I'm pushing for this fall, and uh, but there's other stakeholders that have to do things, and we have to ensure that these other areas are covered off on, and uh, then we move ahead about putting some boots on the ground this fall. All right, Norm Lipinski, thanks for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity, Norm Lipinski, the chief of the Surrey Police Service. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you know, there has been a lot of talk lately about meaningful, positive reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in this province. Land acknowledgements are a small step when it comes to that. Many cities and municipalities are doing that. And Raji Sohal, our contributor, is joining us now with more on that. Yeah, Jill, Surrey, uh, City of Surrey has not um, taken part in in the land acknowledgements. Um, and their refusal came several months ago. So why is it being brought up again? Well, in light of the 250 children whose remains were discovered <clears throat> on the grounds of a residential school in Kamloops, people have been saying, what, what can we do? What more can we do as individuals? What can government do? And so I keep seeing on social, um, on Twitter and whatnot, that Indigenous leaders and others are asking the mayor of Surrey to revisit the issue. And at Surrey City Hall in the last week, there was a vigil held by South Asians for the Indigenous uh, children. And Brandon Gabriel, an Aboriginal artist from the Kwantlen First Nation Reserve in Fort Langley, had this to say at the vigil. A couple months ago, there was a motion on the floor of this civic facility where the mayor and council were asked if they would integrate the land acknowledgement of the people whose territory this on. That motion failed. On a local level, we can put a stop to that. Demand that that motion get put on back on the table. Demand that they give our acknowledgement of our ancestral territory. And thank you for being here. It's the least you can do. That's Indigenous artist Brandon Gabriel at the vigil in uh, at Surrey City Hall this last week. He was asking for the city to do its part, acknowledge the territorial lands before their meetings. So just to give you some background, Jill, when the Truth and Reconciliation Committee put out its recommendations, it included acknowledgement for Indigenous land titles, along with the uh, UNDRIP and provincial government saying that, yes, it will incorporate these principles, which led Surrey City Councillor Jack Hundle earlier this year to bring forth a notice of motion, which gave council two weeks to think about it. So councillors went home, thought about it for two weeks, came back, and at the subsequent meeting, they refused it. And Hundle actually talked to his Delta colleagues who passed it, voted on it unanimously, but Surrey Mayor McCallum voted against it then, and he said he was still on good terms with First Nations and it wasn't necessary to do this land acknowledgement. And, and Hundle thinks that it's our duty to do more as Canadians. Canada, and I look at a community like Surrey, we're a community of uh, really of, of Canadians and immigrants and Indigenous people that were here long before any of us. Uh, you know, Surrey has uh, the largest uh, urban uh, Aboriginal uh, communities in probably Western Canada. On top of that, we are a community of immigrants uh, all around. So we come from different parts of the world. And quite frankly, I, I just don't understand, uh, you know, when on one hand we're trying to fight for community rights in other parts of the country that a basic 
you know, like a basic land acknowledgement would be so important uh, and, and set the tone for where Surrey is today is not being done here. And to me, it just uh, speaks further to the systemic racism uh, we have with the city uh, and certainly the attitudes of some people on council. Yeah, Jill, I think for a lot of people, including myself, it's really hard to understand that resistance. I mean, doing a territorial and uh, land acknowledgement is not, you know, going to take up very much time. It's a very easy thing to implement and it's meaningful. It's an important step that um, Indigenous people want from various levels of government. Hundle says the obvious that this is about racism. Because it's not only a step um, in the right direction for our Aboriginal communities, but it's also a step of where society is today with our uh, certainly with our, our youth, and I think uh, recent polling has showed just that, but it's also the right thing to do. Um, and this is the first step of many steps that we will um, and we should continue to do because this is a, a generational issue. It's not an issue where doing one thing, it's a, it's a checkbox. This is something that we're going to have to continue to do, certainly in our lifetime as Canadians and going into the next generation because the trauma has been so great and spread over such a long time. Uh, interesting. And I mean, looking at what's happening in Surrey, Raji, I'm guessing it's not going to change as far as a whole council because of the majority on council and they voted. Yeah. But there's also probably nothing stopping councillors who want to do this from making that acknowledgement, maybe before they speak to a motion or before they speak uh, to anything at a council meeting. Uh, yes, and Hundle actually spoke about that with me. He said that he has talked to individual councillors and said, look, like, show your support for this. It's not a political issue. We just have to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Um, and yet we're not seeing that kind of leadership. Of course, Jill, I did reach out to the mayor's office and tried to get comment um, actually twice in the last week, and I, I haven't heard anything back because I would have loved to have, I have genuine questions, real questions from McCallum around this too. Just like, why? Why the resistance? All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. That is show contributor Ranji Sohal.